I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Our government knows and our province still needs this station and its workers. Once completely refurbished, the station will produce 2,000 megawatts of safe, reliable and clean electricity. That's enough to power 2 million homes, helping to power the next major international investment. And we know they're going to keep on coming. That's Ontario's Energy Minister Todd Smith. That province is throwing its support behind refurbishing four nuclear reactors in Pickering, Ontario. $2 billion is being pushed into this project with more funding expected. And it's all part of that government's larger plan to expand Ontario's nuclear energy sector. Chris Kiefer is an ER doctor, president of the Climate and Nuclear Advocacy Organization, Canadians for Nuclear Energy. And he has spent the last three years campaigning for this nuclear project in Pickering. He's with me in studio now. Good morning. Good morning, Matt. Why would you do that? Why are you so behind this idea of refurbishing this nuclear power plant? Well, I got interested in the nuclear issue actually when my son was born five years ago. And I started thinking more seriously about climate change. When you have a kid, your time horizons really extend farther out. And being an emergency physician, we talk about triage, how to mobilize the resources available to have the biggest impact. And when I started thinking about things like climate footprint, I looked around uh, and I realized that, you know, living in Ontario, we've achieved that holy grail of a deeply decarbonized grid. We need to double or triple it in order to electrify our economy. But we were about to take a massive step backwards by shutting down Pickering. Again, that's 15% of the electricity that we use in the province. It's delivered carbon-free. It's equivalent of taking offline the uh, hydroelectric capacity we have at Niagara Falls. So, you know, we saw that it was very important for for climate action um, to preserve what we achieved with the coal phase-out in terms of uh, better air quality. And lastly, that plant makes a lot of medical isotopes, which sterilize 20% of the world's single-use medical devices. And those are things I use every day in the emergency department. So lots of reasons. I know it seems like tangential, but that's what brought me to the table on this. You tweeted out, I mean, I'm not sure if we say tweeting anymore because the thing's now called X, but yeah. uh, this decision is a vindication that our three long years of advocacy in the public interest were not in vain. What did you face in terms of that advocacy? There are a lot of suspicions still around nuclear power. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it actually wasn't coming from, you know, anti-nuclear folks. I think, you know, the nuclear industry is used to that kind of pushback. They weren't used to people that were perhaps more pro-nuclear than they were. Mm. And, you know, the decision had been made, I think, at a time when the economy wasn't growing very much, when electricity demand was was stable, that, hey, we could do this. We have a lot of natural gas plants sitting idle. Natural gas used to be cleaner burning than coal. Um, and, uh, you know, even environmentalists said this is a transition fuel. Um, we didn't feel that way. Natural gas is still a major contributor to climate change. And the independent electricity systems operator was very clear. Pickering would be replaced um, with gas. And just to put that in context for the listeners, if anyone feels guilty about flying, Pickering averts 7.6 million transatlantic flights worth of CO2 with its continued operations compared to using gas. So again, many, many reasons why we felt passionately about this. As an ER doctor, you have spoken about the impact that you have seen in terms of climate change on people's health. What have you seen? 
Well, listen, IU started practice when the province still relied on coal for 25% of its electricity. And, you know, that led to a lot of what we call morbidity and mortality. Um, there were 1,900 premature deaths from air pollution every year. What we used to call smog days. We had 54 smog days a year in Toronto, the big smoke. The elimination of that coal fleet was only made possible by nuclear. It was actually the restart of two reactors at Pickering and four at the Bruce Station, which provided 90% of the power we needed to achieve what has been called North America's greatest greenhouse gas reduction. And again, to prevent 1,900 premature deaths per year uh, as a result of air pollution. So, you know, in my clinical practice, I do see a lot less asthma exacerbations, emphysema exacerbations. And we know air pollution is a, is a you know, it impacts far broadly in terms of things like cancer and heart disease. Um, with climate change, we will see more extreme weather. We will see heat waves. Um, and that's when we need electricity the most. And that's where nuclear really fits in because we run our fleet all out during the summer. Unfortunately, things like wind are what I call fair weather friends. They don't operate as we saw in Alberta during extreme weather events. So mm. if it's extremely hot or extremely cold, when it's that hot, humid day, Matt, when you just wish there was a breeze to, to get that sweat off your face, that's when the wind fleet isn't operating. That's when nuclear is. Do you think that Public perception of nuclear energy has changed over time. I ask you this in part because Stephen Gilbo, the Minister of Energy and Climate Change, uh, or the Environment and Climate Change, uh, in 2018 tweeted out, it's time to close Pickering and go for renewables. He was, before he became a politician, an environmental activist, very mm -hmm. prominent environmental activist. You confronted him about his views on nuclear energy. Do you think that that experience taught you anything about about whether people's views on, on nuclear power have changed. You know, absolutely. I think there's been a, a real change in the last five years. Has his, have his views changed? His views have. Um, and, you know, these well-meaning environmental activists have been scoring what I call own goals in their opposition to nuclear in terms of closing down these plants, which, again, have such a big impact in terms of averting emissions. And I think we're starting to see the light on that as climate really emerges as a key priority and as, you, as we realize that natural gas really is not an option. And unfortunately, wind and solar require natural gas for backup. And do we have the timeline just finally to get to this? I mean, it takes a long time, not even to build these plants, but to refurbish them. It's going to cost a lot of money as well, which is a separate matter. The clock is ticking and you're, you're seeing this in the emergency mm -hmm. department. Is this a bet that we can afford to make given the timelines that nuclear power demands? So, you know, our refurbishments, which are essentially engine swap outs at our nuclear plants, have been going very well at Bruce and Darlington. The last Those unit, are two other that's power right. plants. Yeah, Darlington, the last refurbishment was six months ahead of schedule. Matt, we don't hear about that with mega projects, be it airports, bridges, and especially nuclear plants. We have something very special here in Ontario with the institutional and human resource excellence that we've developed in this sector. Pickering is the fastest way to bring that baseload electricity, that reliable electricity that we need in order to continue the electrification of our economy, at least not to take a step backwards. We'll leave it there. We're going to hear, I'm sure, from somebody who um, has some concerns around this. But in the meantime, I'm glad to have you here as part of this conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. It's been Dr. a pleasure. Dr. Chris Kiefer is president of the Climate Advocacy Group, Canadians for Nuclear Energy. He was with me in studio in Toronto. Canada is the sixth largest energy nuclear energy generating country in the world, accounting for 4% of the world's nuclear energy. David Novog is a professor of nuclear engineering at McMaster University and director of the McMaster Institute for Energy Studies. David, hello to you. Good morning. Can you just explain what exactly it means to refurbish a nuclear power plant? Yeah, so all, all the devices that we have in society, you know, any machine or car or anything like that, the, the engineers that build them, they design them for a certain lifespan. 
And it's important that when you get towards that lifespan that you take out the components that, that, that need to be replaced. So when we're looking at a nuclear plant, there's things like valves and pipes and pumps, pretty conventional things that need to be replaced or, or, or rebuilt. Mm. And, and the can-do designs in general were, were, were meant to last 30 years. So as reactors like Pickering, and also I, I just heard you guys mention Darlington and Bruce, as they encroach on those 30-year lifespans, they need to be they need to be taken offline so that those components can be swapped out or 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 rebuilt, um, much like you would rebuild an engine in a car or 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 replace components in in your house as they become sort of end of life. If I replace components in my house, generally I know how much it's going to cost me. The Ontario government is committing two billion dollars to start this refurbishing process, but won't say actually how much this is going to cost. How expensive could it get? When we look at the refurbishment of other reactors in Ontario, um, there, you know, a number like Darlington would, would be in, in the 10 billion or, or above range. Um, every reactor, because in Ontario, we built reactors over a span of 20 or 30 years. Every one of those stations, Darlington, Pickering, Bruce, they all have differences. And so this first $2 billion that the province announced is really to look at the specific things in Pickering and determine all of the items and scope that needs to be done to, to, to replace the components mm -hmm. inside. And, and, you know, another important consideration is these are not, you know, pipes that we can go to Home Depot and buy. Some of these components need to be ordered years in advance. And so it's, that, that's this first phase that the province is talking about is really assessing the specific pickering work that needs to be done. And also to start the process of ordering some of those components that they know will take, you know, several years to, 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 to be delivered. Do you think this is a good investment? Yeah, I think, you know, as I just heard your previous guest talking, right now, this is the fastest way and, and the most reliable way, the most cost-effective way to bring reliable power and, and increase the, the, the power that we have here in Ontario. You've, all, you've also said that you, you wrote an opinion piece saying that there, there is no path to net zero by 2050 without nuclear energy. Yeah, I wrote that, but I was actually quoting one of our fed, federal ministers from 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 Ottawa who who was who who coined that phrase first, because it is important to realize that we will need all sorts of electricity when we're talking about you know electric vehicles and electrifying industry and electrifying home heating. This is going to put a huge demand on our electricity supply systems everywhere in Canada, and and we've seen some stresses in Alberta recently uh, that came up. So what we're going to need is is sort of like a all hands on deck kind of approach and nuclear has to form that baseload because as your previous guests mentioned things like wind or solar you know today i'm looking outside here in ontario there's not a lot of sun today not not so far and it's important that we have you know a capability to produce electricity irrespective of sort of the environmental conditions on each day. Cause we sometimes in Ontario, I mean, it gets gloomy here. We went through December and I don't think I've seen the sun a whole lot. Mm. So we need to have that reliable power there and ready to be able to make sure that, you know, people can have their lives, charge their cars and industry can keep working. We haven't figured out yet what to do with the waste in the long term, right? Well, I think I think actually that that's a solution that Canada is one of the leaders on, and and globally there's there's been a huge advancement in the last few years. If we look at places like Finland, Finland also relies on on nuclear energy quite a bit, and they're well along on their process of of excavating and building a facility to for the long term storage of the waste. Where where are we going? And where Canada, are we going to put it in Canada? I mean, we have to figure it somewhere that someone's going to take it to bury it in the ground forever, right? 
Yeah, so this has been a great process. There's an organization, their federal organization called Nuclear Waste Management Organization, NWMO. And they've gone through more than a 10-year process of speaking to communities, to of providing education resources to communities to determine which communities would want to host this kind of facility. Because, you know, this, this is a facility that will store nuclear waste, but it'll also bring tremendous jobs and security of those jobs to, to a given region. So right now, the NWMO is in a process where they have two communities. They've gone through, they started with around 20 or 22 communities. And they're down to two communities in the selection process. And that decision is supposed to be made this year. And after that, they'll be, begin, you know, the, the construction process of getting that facility into place. Just before I let you go, just very briefly, is your sense that public opinion on this has changed? I've noticed quite a bit that, you know, people are beginning to realize, and I think climate change has been part of it. Uh, you know, ice storms in Texas and and the situation in Alberta last month. All these things, I think people can see that that reliable electricity is is like an integral part of their lives. And the only really way to decarbonize is to increase that electricity, to make it so, you know, electrify so many things that 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 we don't rely on fossil fuels. And I think your previous guest mentioned, you know, the, the phase out of coal was a big step in Ontario. But, you know, the next step is really phasing out of natural gas. And so... Uh, you know, Pickering will offset a lot of our natural gas consumption here in Ontario. And, and you know, as other provinces, for example, Saskatchewan are looking at their grids, mm. I know they're also considering nuclear. Da David, we'll leave it there. Glad to talk to you. Thank you. Great. Thanks. David Novog is the director of the McMaster Institute for Energy Studies. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced the Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. The Pickering Nuclear Project has sparked debate Beyond Ontario, when it comes to the funding of renewable energy sources, Mark Winfield is a professor of environmental and urban change at York University, also the co-chair of the Sustainable Energy Initiative. Mark, good morning to you. Good morning. What do you make of, uh, of this? I mean, you just heard there is no path to net zero by 2050 without nuclear energy, say an increasing number of people. Are they wrong? Uh, I would disagree with them. I think we've actually seen quite a bit of modeling looking at precisely that scenario and also looking more specifically at the phase out of natural gas in Ontario by 2035, uh, which does not involve nuclear expansion or uh, the refurbishment of the Pickering B plant. So where is the power going to come from? Increasingly, we are told we need electric vehicles. People are being asked to uh, install heat pumps, for example. You phased out coal in Ontario. That's looking at happening elsewhere. Uh, you're looking at perhaps dialing down natural gas. Where is the electricity going to come from? from? It's likely to come from multiple sources. If you look at the modeling that's been done, um, we there's a great deal that can be done on the demand side. Ontario had a very successful energy efficiency strategy, which the Ford government scrapped now nearly five years ago. Uh, there's very large potential there, and, and there's more sophisticated things that can happen on the demand side as well. Clearly, growth in renewables, uh, making better use of existing hydroelectric storage assets is going to be a significant factor as well. We are in the midst of a technological revolution on the storage side, meaning 
far more than batteries as well. And um, we're also uh, one of the areas which is which is getting a lot of attention, and we're seeing movement in other jurisdictions, is around distributed resources, which is basically wiring together rooftop solar, building level storage assets into microgrids, potentially even fleets of parked electric vehicles. Um, Things are moving very quickly in those spaces. Uh, we're starting to see evidence, very significant potential there. So there's there's this an underlying question of the extent to which, uh, as we move towards electrification, to what degree does that translate actually into grid demand, which would be served by large centralized high cost generating assets like mm. nuclear power plants versus much more distributed resources. We saw it last month in Alberta uh, during extreme cold and not a lot of wind and not a lot of solar because the sun was setting very early, that there were threats that the power grid was going to go down, that people were going to have blackouts and brownouts and that people needed to dial their power down. Does that not speak for the phrase that David used was all hands on deck, that you need a lot of different sources, especially if you were going to have more drains on the grid itself to ensure that that power is actually there when people need it and that nuclear needs to be part of that? Well, nuclear isn't going to help you with the peaking because it doesn't have any capacity to ramp. It's, it's a flat line. So in terms of meeting peaks like that, uh, it doesn't really help you that much. You're going to need other dispatchable resources in the system as well. Um, there's larger sets of questions around decarbonization pathways, particularly in relation to space heating in places that suffer that kind of extreme cold. That's not necessarily the case in urban southern Ontario, but it is it is a set of questions we're going to have to think about in terms of what are we going to do in terms of space heating especially. At its heart then, what is your objection to this? What is your objection to, to the refurbishment of this nuclear station? Well, the the there's many layers to that. Uh, the biggest one, of course, is it just doesn't make any economic sense. Uh, one of the bizarre aspects of this is the government is proposing to spend $2 billion to repeat a study that was done more than a decade ago. <clears throat> they concluded that refurbishing uh, the Pickering B plant was completely uneconomic, and the idea was dropped at that point. Uh, there are... so. You know, it, it's we we would have to think about rough estimates, potentially in the fifteen billion dollar range. But given the <clears throat> the age of the plant and the experience with the attempts at refurbishing Pickering A and the Bruce A plants, there's no guarantees in terms of the outcomes. The reality is the province has a wide range of better, safer, cheaper, more reliable options. This this just does not make sense to uh, try and refurbish a 50-year-old nuclear power plant in the middle of what is now a dense urban area where you would not be allowed to build a nuclear power plant in the present. Uh, there are then a larger set of questions that you hinted at that nuclear may offer a relatively low carbon energy source, mm. but in terms of virtually every other dimension of sustainability you could care to imagine, it scores very, very poorly. 22, con 22 countries around the world are, we're almost out of time, so let me just ask you this, 22 countries around the world are looking to triple their nuclear power output by 2050. The UK, France, China, all building new nuclear power plants. Saskatchewan has plans as well, along with the United States, uh, other nations and jurisdictions as well. Do you think, I mean, it, this is the question that I asked uh, our other two guests. H has the public sentiment on this changed? Do you see a change in that in the face of a climate crisis? 
No, I think what's happened is partially because we haven't in Canada initiated a nuclear construction project in more than 50 years. The issue's been off people's radar screens. And we also sort of skipped the experience of the few jurisdictions that actually did try and build new nuclear plants in the UK, the US, Finland, and France. And all of those projects have, have been suffered very, very serious cost overruns, major delays, um, which is causing a lot of doubt in terms of is this the pathway that we really want to take, mm. given the availability of more reliable, lower risk, uh, and safer resources. We'll leave it there. Mark, good to talk to you about this. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you. Mark Winfield is a professor at York University in environmental and urban change. He's also the co-chair of the Sustainable Energy Initiative. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.